have teamed up with 500 Startups' CVC Insider Series, where top CVC practitioners offer advice and best practices regarding common challenges encountered within corporate venturing. Featured this week is an interview with Aaron Brandt of Hypertherm Ventures and Nicolas Sauvage of TDK Ventures. Thank you, uh, 500 Startups, for making this happen. This is really meaningful. Uh, for everyone in corporate venturing or thinking about corporate venturing to learn from the best and people who've done it for a long time or like today people who have just started doing corporate venturing and and doing well and a very good start uh, hypersam ventures is of course from the corporate hypersam and you will learn about the fact it's like um, the startups that was founded 50 years ago in the carriage uh, but also their triple bottom uh, line company and their mindset, which I think is very, very uh, meaningful. Aaron Brandt is heading the corporate venturing, the CVC, and he started it. He proposed a project, and we want to hear about it. So Aaron, if you can spend five to 10 minutes maybe to talk about your personal journey and how it led to, uh, to your CVC. Sure. Thanks, Nicola. Um, and hello, everyone. Really happy to spend this time with you. Uh, so to back up a little bit, I've been with Hypertherm uh, for over 20 years, which is uh, quite a long time uh, to stay with any one company. My journey uh, really started with my graduate work where I was uh, doing research on laser cutting at Penn State University and working on a project there and then networking and connected to start my career as an R&D engineer at Hypertherm and did that for quite a few years, um, really designing plasma cutting products. Uh, so if you don't know what plasma is, Imagine stars, the sun, uh, lightning, uh, so 20,000 degrees used to cut all types of conductive materials. Uh, and really there, you know, I got hooked on Hypertherm for a few reasons. One, just an amazing corporate culture from the founder who was also an engineer, uh, just a really caring for doing great by customers, but always also great for people, uh, communities and environment. And then uh, for me, that initial sort of dopamine rush was working on uh, new technologies and then you know, traveling through Asia to some of the largest shipyards of the world and seeing them actually use uh, some of the designs that I had worked on. You know, but for me, you know, it was always about technology, but also a strong interest in business. And so as I advanced and as the company grew, uh, it moved into areas of engineering leadership. So leading uh, large projects and uh, large new R&D technology efforts. And then ultimately into general management. So I managed our largest uh, heavy industrial plasma business for about five, six years, uh, you know, which is um, which was a great team to work with. The way we work at Hypertherm, our business units are really kind of standalone companies with engineering, marketing and operations all you know, co-located working on a common customer segment. And so those were some great times. That business unit was about 80 percent international. So a lot of my time spent in Europe and in Asia and South America. And these were the kind of late 2000s where, you know, the BRIC countries were really uh, driving a lot of the global growth, um, at least through 2009. And, uh, and it was a lot of fantastic uh, time to be a business leader. And then about five, six years ago, you know, uh, had the opportunity to move on to our senior management team as head of R&D and technology, um, which was a great opportunity for me. You know, what's always driven my passion throughout my career is that intersection of technology, business opportunity, and, and people, and, and how their needs can be further met, and how you can build successful business models around that. And so my whole goal as kind of head of uh, technology is to, to help build that within our business units, but also to expand our reach into other areas. 
And, you know, and then just in the last two to three years, getting going on setting up the, our corporate venture capital group, uh, assembling the team, finding the partners and starting that journey. And so, and so maybe to, to build on that a little bit, tell a little bit about Hypertherm's journey and then how that kind of then connects with my career now uh, where we're trying to go with venture capital. Uh, you know, Hypertherm was founded uh, 50 years ago uh, in a garage, as Anikla mentioned. Uh, so we've got the, the common you know, founder's story of just an engineer working on an exciting technology that they were hoping to bring to market. Our founder, Dick Couch, uh, started in the late 60s and then uh, really just through uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears, really built the company over time uh, for many years. Uh, when I joined the company 20 plus years ago, we were about uh, 300 associates at the time. You know, it, right entering the early 2000s, so going on the kind of the rocket ride of global growth with everyone else, where we really built over time a, a very dominant position in our uh, market, which at the time was heavily focused on plasma cutting equipment. So today, uh, at this point, we're still the global market leader uh, in plasma cutting uh, worldwide, both for heavy industrial equipment, robotics and automation, as well as handheld equipment. Um, a couple things were happening as part of that journey. One, in the early 2000s, uh, our founder was starting to think about exit options uh, for them, and they had always instilled a strong ethos of collaboration, uh, ownership mindset. And so for them, the most natural exit uh, wasn't to go public or to consider a sale, but actually to sell the company back to the employees. And so uh, they started that in the mid-2000s with selling about 25 to 30% of the company back uh, to employees. And then in 2014, uh, sold the rest of the company back. So today we're 100% employee owned. So we call them associates in, in house. Uh, and so no external shareholders for our founder that was always part of the mission was that if you kind of simplify the business model, if you make it so the only thing people have to worry about is the customer, they're the only external stakeholder that matters, you'll do right by them and that will grow value and profit. And so every year stock is granted to employees, uh, every year profit sharing is granted, even in a tough year like this year, uh, everyone at the company uh, receipt, you know, we, we gave out um, uh, just under 20 million in profit sharing this year alone uh, to employees. And so a really strong testament to the strength of the company that's been built. We've also always been very much try to keep in balance people, planet and profit. And you know, that's become a very popular uh, buzzword. And, you know, this desire to manage triple bottom line, that's been a key part of our journey as well. And uh, setting aggressive environmental goals, uh, setting uh, strong community engagement goals. And for us, that's just part of being long-term capitalists in that if you want, you know, if I imagine 10 years from now, we'll compete in a more energy constrained world, uh, doing this not only feels good because you're doing right for the world, but you're also making yourself more competitive. The other thing that was happening at the same time was, you know, with dominant market share in plasma, we were looking for other avenues of growth. And so, for us trying to be true to who we are and we're industrial manufacturing people and looking at uh, other multi-technology areas, other ge geographies to expand into. And so as we started that journey, one of the large beachheads we've built up to date has been in the water jet industry. That's both been through uh, internal innovation as well as acquisition. Uh, just now going on about 18 months ago, we acquired Omax uh, Water Jet Corporation. It's located in Kent, Washington, and they're a strong global leader in, in water jet cutting. We have other strong plans for acquisition, but we're also looking at our internal incubation innovation engine. Uh, I've got a great advanced development team that does internal research that we've built up. 
Uh, all of the business units are doing R&D. We invest uh, quite heavily in R&D every year, a, a very large percentage of sales. Um, but we also knew that a lot of innovation was going to be outside of our four walls. So how do we get at that? And we were looking at investments somewhat, you know, this might be similar to other people, one at a time where a business sees a need or they think, boy, if there could just be some innovation in this space, that would create opportunities for our customers, maybe something that we could participate in. Um, and then you try and find the best one you can. And then you're looking at everything as kind of a one-off, you know, is this a thumbs up or thumbs down? And through some conversations between myself and the CEO, you know, we sat down and said, you know, you know, if we really want to do this, if we really want to participate in an external innovation ecosystem, we need to get some professional help. Uh, we need to uh, really build a strong team and we need to do this in the right way. And we had very little understanding of corporate venture capital. So uh, that's where we kind of started the journey uh, to get there and, and what kind of brought us through today. And I'm sure we'll explore a little bit about kind of the founding days of the CVC, but that that kind of catches you up to just a few years back for my career uh, and for the history of Hypertherm. Very nice. Thank you, Aaron. It's a very meaningful story. It's actually a beautiful story. I really like the way you decided on the right reason to do a corporate VC. So I, I, I would probably double click on the why later, but I just want to ask a personal question, which is about your, your background. So clearly you invest in technology companies. So clearly your engineering background is useful for that. My question is, is your engineering background as part of a CVC useful beyond just the due diligence of the companies? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that for most startup, you know, when we talk about whether it's a startup or a new business opportunity, uh, there's a couple of things that have to connect. And I really like the IDEO model here of human-centered design to describe it, which is, you know, it's there's got to be uh, some sort of novel value in technology. Uh, there's got to be a need, a human-centered need for it. And there's got to be a way to craft a successful business out of it, right? So to, we, we def I define, and I think a lot of others define innovation as something that's novel, something that's useful, and something that's successful. You need all three. So the technology background that I bring, and so my, my degrees are in mechanical engineering, um, and then I've built, I don't have an MBA, but I've built out my business experience over time with some, you know, as I was kind of moving to general management, taking, you know, the marketing course at Kellogg or uh, because we're in New England, uh, going to MIT for some exec education on technology driven business models. And so really kind of tried to build out and round out my uh, CV to support that. And then obviously the years as a GM, but, you know, really that grounding and fundamental passion around technology and how that can improve people's lives. I think that's where it really should be started and centered. And then if it's really useful, if there's uh, innovative technology that can provide a use, then we'll find a way. You know, it, it may need an enabling technology that's not ready yet, but uh, the business model will emerge uh, with, with more uh, digging and support. But yeah, I, I feel that having, having at least a portion, not everyone on the team has to be uh, sort of a technologist or technology centered, but you all have to, I think, sh have that shared common uh, vision and belief that, you know, we can create new things that improve people's lives and outcomes. Very nice. And I did not know you, you, you lived in Asia. So I lived 12 years in Asia. So maybe that's a discussion for another time. How much of your investments are just looking at the US versus completely globally? Because innovations could happen anywhere in the world. Yeah. So, you know, starting out for us, you know, we made kind of the conscious decision to say, you know, for at least while we're getting started, let's stay somewhat close to home, uh, a little easier to do the diligence, to do the research. We 
our, our team is, is heavily, you know, we are a global company, um, just under 2000 uh, associates now, uh, kind of spread out throughout the world um, with strong presence, but at the same time, you know, staying a little bit uh, North American centered to start was the goal. However, we are open to deal flow from other areas. We've looked at companies uh, in Asia, in Africa, actually, uh, that are in our target areas of interest. So we're open relative geographically, but but certainly with a, a more dominant uh, North American mindset, at least for the first couple of years as the team, the team gets you know momentum and capability and, and experience. Very nice. And, and part of this, I, I like to call it building the muscle and then building the reflexes. So maybe yeah. this is one of the golden nuggets, which is really about take your time and start small and then you can always grow, but you need to get the best practices first. So I like your, your conscious decision to start local where you can really do a good job with your due diligence, add value, I guess, to the uh, companies you invest in. And then you can expand, even though you're open-minded right from the beginning. Um, I saw you nodding when I said adding value to the portfolio company. Yeah. So can you explain how you uh, intended to add value to the portfolio companies and how in practice you see this value added? Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. And I think, you know, this comes to sort of those founding conversations of or why are we creating a CVC and and what's our whole purpose here? And I think it's, you know, and luckily we found some great partners early on to help us uh, with that journey. And I'll throw kind of a quick shout out to Mach 49, who I know is our kind of shared partner uh, in this journey. And so really with Paul and Linda and that whole team, uh, really being able to help, you know, guide us in, you know, where are you going to get value from this? How can you give value? What's what what is the, those give to gets uh, that are throughout, and you know I think a lot of people start you know especially uh, management teams and boards with the perspective that this is kind of pre acquisition activity and you know we're getting a, a toehold in so we can uh, gain our market share and really kind of correcting that uh, vision, and for us to say you know the areas of interest for for us are you know if it's very near in and very close to home then we'll have a business unit being uh, doing that R and D and research, uh, but if it's Something that's you know out ahead of us, both in terms of years, so uh, something that's going to take a long time to develop. It's expertise that's well outside our four walls, and certainly, you know, while we want to incubate uh, startups within our organization, that's very hard work for a corporation to do. Um, you know, typically, you know, to, to even if you get a business with some uh, finances and they're getting sales and traction, they're still very small relative to the broader. Uh, organization. So the fight for resources versus, uh, you know, the balance of that versus someone who's like a startup that's fully committed, fully passionate and engaged in one area. Um, so, you know, kind of putting that to the side, you know, this understanding that when we look at investments, we look at it a couple of different ways. Of course, there's the pure financial lens, which we feel is very important uh, that you look at it and say, hey, this needs to make sense as if I were any other, you know, financially driven VC corporate or not, um, would I, from a venture capital view, want to make this investment? That is first and foremost. And if you don't uh, cross that threshold, it's, it's, there's no point in carrying on from there. Um, the corporate lens comes in a few ways. One is, uh, what are those areas of interest? And for us, uh, those are primarily ones that are advanced manufacturing. Uh, so, and areas that will be disruptive over a five to 10, 15 year period, uh, change the landscape, and then hopefully, also help advance manufacturing and bring positive change. And so that's an important message for us that our VC uh, also reflects the corporate values that you know, we see advanced manufacturing as bringing well-paying jobs, 
really supporting communities, uh, really kind of driving uh, you know, this modern world further and really being a major engine to that journey. And so for us, uh, everything about advanced manufacturing can be win in all, a win in all of those categories. Uh, so whether it's, uh, you know, uh, typical manufacturing processing like additive manufacturing or other sort of advanced manufacturing technologies, that's of interest for us. Certainly robotics and automation is, is, a, is a real key uh, area of focus uh, as we see that just continue to accelerate um, as the world both becomes more interconnected, but also people try to maintain things more locally, both due to efficiencies of supply chains, as well as uh, reduction in carbon in supply chains. And then finally, kind of digital innovation for manufacturing and whether that be uh, connected products and devices, so the industry 4.0, if you will, uh, as well as the advanced analytics that build on it. So artificial intelligence, machine learning. So these are all areas where, you know, Hypertherm isn't an expert. And so for us, investing, again, the financial return is key, but then also that learning uh, that drives back to the organization. We really consider ourselves kind of pioneers and scouts to find emerging technology and really working with someone that's trying to make a business of it. You learn so much more than just maybe subscribing to a report or, you know, getting industry information back. Um, we also hope to identify areas where ecosystems can be created that our businesses can benefit from. So if someone is creating a capability uh, within a new space, uh, if someone's bringing machine learning to industrial applications in a way that's going to really benefit our products, we want our businesses partner with them. And so that's a great uh, way for our businesses to learn. And then, you know, the final piece of kind of bringing all that back to your original question, which was what value can we drive? You know, like with every uh, investment we've done to date, what we really try and do from day one is sit down and say, you know, just like a job interview, we need to, you know, you need to be right for us. We need to be right for you and uh, really try and document down what are your expectations? One of the key learnings, uh, you know, we found early on for corporate venture capital that we wanted to correct. One was the, you know, don't be overly slow in your decision making. Don't write 50 page term sheets uh, that have all these hooks that, you know, startups won't want. And finally, you know, do what you say you're going to do in terms of the way you're going to provide help. So we, we've tried to create a document that kind of codifies that from day one with the founders to say, hey, here's the areas you've talked about. And whether that be, you know, maybe you need help with intellectual property. We've got a global practice of intellectual property on both development and enforcement. So we've learned a lot of lessons you can benefit from. Or if you're trying to sell to uh, people that are doing production, let's get you connected to our head of supply chain. and you know, you guys can have conversations, you can talk about how it fits, you can try out what how what the acceptance of business models would be. Um, maybe it's, uh, you know, getting, I can gather a group of senior technologists to come do a design review with your top team uh, and offer input based on decades of experience. And we can serve that up in very limited time, whereas you to try and get industry experts assembled like that would be challenging. And, and then certainly, you know, customer introductions go Huge, huge, uh, is, a, is a huge part of it. So we have a global network of thousands of end users and channel partners and distributors who are all interested in learning from new businesses. And, and you know, what I found is that, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get those introductions flowing. People are excited about startups. People are ex excited about innovation. So, you know, normally it, it isn't a big favor to ask to say, hey, would you mind, uh, you know, connecting with the startup? They're doing some really exciting work and and then they can just take the conversation from there. So, I think really for what we've learned is let's just try and document it as well as we can 
let's try and get some early wins with that. So we're, we're building momentum together and then um, really kind of driving that learning in both directions. I have to say, wow, I think Aaron, you are very articulate about all the things that really matters and you've been very deliberate about identifying value you can bring to your portfolio companies. And when you talk about introductions to customers, you're right that they are open to startups, but actually when it comes from a very highly qualified introduction, this actually is a big difference because they know that you already trust the startup, you've done your due diligence, you know they are going to add value to your customer. In a way, you could call it or coin it triple win because it's not just the startups that get introduced to a good customer and the customer that gets introduced to a good technology or new, or new innovations, but actually Hyperserm is also going to get uh, credibility for having made this introduction. Yeah. Uh, I, I really love the way you, you described it, very articulate. I'm going to double click on the one that is a list of views for companies that keep talking about triple bottom line and contributing to society and all of that, which is the financial mindset. And don't get me wrong, I totally agree, but I want to understand why you started with the financial metrics before you got to the rest of the explanations. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I think, yeah, and and all these things have to be in balance, right? And and for us, but if there's one thing we've learned it's in our initial work is if you can get too overexcited about a technology, and I've done this in my own personal professional career as well, uh, and then you don't think through, you know, is this the right team to take that on? Do they have all the elements that they need to be successful? Um, you know, have they thought correctly about traction? Uh, you know, do, are they targeting the right customer segments early? You can have the best technology in the world and you won't get off square one. Uh, so that total business view is really important. The other piece for us is that, you know, we are, you know, we're a mid-sized company and we've, we've allocated, you know, um, you know, 30 million to this first fund, which is, you know, a, a decent amount of money, but it, it, it doesn't, won't go that incredibly far. And so for us having, the knowledge that not only are we investing in a technology and a founder that will be successful, but they're also someone who will be able to do additional fundraising. And so we're going to be one person around the table. We're not going to be carrying the full load. So if it doesn't make financial sense, being able to really uh, create a very strong investor pool for this startup, which they're going to need uh, to be successful, will not be possible. And I think particularly for hard tech, and you and I both know this really well, uh, hard tech takes a lot of capital. It's capital intensive. Uh, the technology work takes years and years, and it it takes it it takes a lot of money. And you will need an ability to continue to fundraise, continue to drive money, and ultimately that will require people uh, that are are going to be predominantly financially minded uh, to get around the table. And so so that's why we start there. Um, and otherwise, you get you get in the trap of maybe getting a little too excited about the tech or a little too close to home. And now you're talking about R&D funding as opposed to a venture investment at that point. Yeah, it makes total sense. The way I like to think about it is if you want to have an impact, you can only do it if you pick the winners. Yeah. The winners are going to be the ones that actually find the market fit and get the customers and pivot first and so on. So being financially minded is really about being rigorous and strict with yourselves. And like you said, these $30 million, in your case, every associate in your company wants to make sure you invest it in the right places. So That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think especially as you're communicating back to, you know, your, your, the overall corporation and, 
you know, money, you know, money is money and capital is capital and business teams are held to very high standards for every investment. Um, we should be no different. And, uh, and I think we all want to make sure that they're, uh, you know, while venture investing is still very high risk, uh, you want, so you want to make the best possible bets you can to put yourself in the highest chance to succeed. So earlier you talked about mindset and for me, the mindset of a company is, um, making sure you dist the distribution law of outcomes is shifted to the right. As a management get better, you get better returns on most of your projects. While this investment is a power law, you're going to do very badly for most of your investments, but very few will do really well. And that's what returns your fund or more. And so I want to have an understanding about when you look at an investment, are you looking at each investment returning something, but not necessarily a lot? Or are you thinking like a VC, which is, it's okay that many of them fail because we are looking at the very big alpha, which could return a lot. And that's a very different philosophy to a corporate. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and, and I think we're still finding our way a little bit on that question. You know, as we're, you know, we, we've made three investments to date. Uh, we're negotiating on, on some more in pipeline. Uh, so just getting started. So we've had those conversations about, you know, when we look, in five years, what do we want the portfolio to look like? How do we want it to be balanced? You know, I'd say to start, we're just, we've identified our spaces. We're trying to map them as well as we can and finding the best possible ones in each category. And then really trying to explore relationships with them and partnerships with them. And we'll see a little bit where we end up, but we're certainly comfortable uh, having that, you know, high risk piece of our overall investment portfolio and, and really counting on of these, maybe only uh, a, a small handful really breaking through. And hopefully we're bringing, you know, because we're starting in, you know, we're, we're primarily early stage. So focused on seed in series A. So we are going to have a high, uh, high uh, risk uh, built into the portfolio just, just from the initial setup. So, so I'd say we're comfortable with that. And I think that because, you know, we really, you know, we try to instill this ethos in our design teams as well. Um, you know, having things that don't go the way you thought they would is learning. Um, you know, when we run experiments in the R&D labs, uh, failure is uh, failure, quote unquote, of an experiment is a good thing because that drove learning. If I run a test that I already know the outcome to, I generated zero learning. So whether it was a huge success or it was a huge failure, actually, the, at, at the apex of either of those states is the highest amount of learning you can have. And so that's why I think when we're looking at these investments, yeah, we want to bring as much thinking as we want. And we go into each one with the mindset that this one could be a huge success, but we also know what learning we're going to get from it. And so even if that's not the one that breaks through and there's only a small handful that do of the whole portfolio, we're going to be bringing just a wealth of information back uh, to the organization. And then the financial return is really just meant to help us keep this fund evergreen uh, so that we can continue to impact uh, startups, so we can continue to, to support those organizations and hopefully as well drive very positive value um, back back to Hypertherm. So, so there's one thing you said, which I really like to double click on. I really like it, which is you just started your CVC, you have done three investments, but you're already thinking about what the portfolio should look like in five years. Can you walk me through the, the mindset and what type of questions and answers you have for what your portfolio should look like in five years? Yeah, so it's it's a great question, and a couple of the conversations, and we're still forming this a little bit too. Uh, in full disclosure, a couple of the ways we've thought about this. Obviously, we've got kind of our four to five areas of interest, and it's a little bit about where, how do we want those weighted? 
you know, thinking about where we can have impact. And a lot of that's where we direct uh, our team uh, to focus their research and say, all right, where do I want your spread of time spent today, knowing that's likely going to reflect an outcome? And also what's what's happening in industry right now? Where are uh, where's a lot of the money flowing? Where are startups really having traction and, and build? Um, so that's how we've that's how we've weighted. And in general, we've positioned a lot of the portfolio to be further away from home. You know, we want to, we know that our, you know, staying close to what we know, which is industrial manufacturing is paramount. Um, that's where we have expertise. That's where we have, frankly, uh, a license or a right to even consider investing uh, because we have some understanding of that space. Whereas if we were getting into FinTech or medical devices, you know, we would be outside of, of our core. Um, you know, so, so it, it, it's still grounded in manufacturing, but we also wanted to say, you know, again, thinking from a maximum learning perspective, you know, where digital um, solutions are absolutely critical to the future of our organization. A lot of our technology breakthroughs today are a combined intersection of hardware, software, and, and process. And while we've predominantly been a hardware company for our 50 plus years, today, nearly half of our internal R&D engineers are software engineers. And I think that's a natural journey a lot of hard tech companies have been on is that transition to software. So we've weighted more heavily to digital solutions for that reason, because that's an area where peak learning is required. Another area of focus was where are the areas of potential maximum disruption to core business? And for any metal um, focused uh, company where we've been with Plasma, Waterjet being much more diverse, um, metal added manufacturing uh, shows up loud and clear as potential disruptor over the next 10 years. And so our very first investment was in a metal additive uh, company in San Francisco. Um, so, so it's been really with the lens of uh, target area, as opposed to trying to blend across seed series A, B, or size of investment. We're kind of um, letting those come as as they may. You know, our typical check rates are going to be between you know, 500k to 2 million, max of three for an initial check. So we're already going to be somewhat you know, balanced portfolio there anyway. So it's been mostly about spaces. I think this is great because it shows where you want to go and your investments fits within that kind of uh, directions. You mentioned license to operate, which to me means also you have your zone of comfort. Mm. Yet your, your role is to actually go beyond that zone of comfort. You even talked about disruptions coming your way. And, and in many ways, maybe the CVC is really about embracing this disruption, understanding them. And that's probably part of what you mentioned about what are the learnings you expect from each investment. So one of my questions, which could be really practical, but maybe useful for others in the audience is, how do you, when you make the investment proposal, how do you document what type of learnings you are expecting to get? And do you, do you plan to track that you're getting the learnings you were expecting? Yeah, no. So what we've, yeah, the answer to that is an emphatic yes and yes. Uh, you know, and and I think any good board will hold you well accountable, uh, certainly to the financial governance, but as well as are you know are you getting total value? And that's been you know maybe if I can take a pause there, you know a key part of this journey of learning for both our us as a team, the man how we communicate with management team, my colleagues, how we communicate with the board, what are our objectives here, what are we trying to get out, uh, and really cementing what does learning mean. So the way we've captured it to date, when we uh, are looking at a new investment, we craft an investment memo uh, that's several pages that's meant to go to our investment committee, uh, which is made up of a handful of management members. 
our CFO sits on that, our CEO as well. Um, you know, we're a small company, so getting them together in, in rapid orders is quite possible. Uh, but what we try to walk through are all the key elements of the investment thesis, which includes the learning piece. Uh, you know, what is it that um, they're exploring that's novel here? How would that benefit our core business? How would that benefit our operations? Uh, how would this um, bring back learning to the organization? And how will we be communicating with them? What value are they expecting for us to provide? Because that interchange is, is very critical for us to document. And then I think, you know, it gets back to license to operate a little bit in that you want to demonstrate, especially for a new CVC, um, you want to show that you're building value over time. And I remember it was, I think, the GCBI conference, and I can't remember the speaker, but they said something that really resonated with me that the average uh, new VC fund takes seven years to show financial value and the average life of a CVC is four to five years, uh, which means you better be demonstrating value as you go. Uh, so you're, you're, you're getting additional license to operate by your management, by your board. And so for us, those early ones are so critical. One of an example of that for us, we did an investment um, this summer in a great company called Ready Robotics and they're uh, located in Columbus, uh, Ohio. And they do some really interesting work on sort of the future of, uh, you know, the essentially the control system for a robot, which, you know, if not to go too deeply into this, but, you know, the eight, 10 plus robot manufacturers all have their own interface systems, their own software. And so if you're a company that's trying to figure that out, or you're someone who's trying to learn how to operate robots, that's a real struggle. Uh, so they've created a unified operating system to make it super easy to learn super easy to run any type of robot without any programming capability. Really great stuff. We have uh, a robotic software company in, in, our port, in our company portfolio in Montreal uh, that does offline programming. These guys are doing the online, so very synergistic for us as well. We can help them. One of the early wins for us was getting them to come on site, not easy in a pandemic, uh, but to meet with operations, uh, to think about some learning opportunities that we could drive, uh, we're we're on an automation journey with our within our own four walls. So really having those deep conversations between the startup, between our operations leadership, talking about projects they can be working on. So that's been was a great outcome. They're continuing to work well together. We've documented that, and so we're developing. It was right on the initial investment thesis. Can we demonstrate it quickly? Can we show it? And then you you bet in our quarterly board updates that was front and center. Uh, with here's what we're doing. This is one of the key benefits for us to be involved uh, with this startup. Very nice. And maybe we will double click on the investment uh, memo. How how collaborative is that writing of the investment memo with all the business parts of your company? Do you get a lot of inputs? Do you collaborate, or is that something you prefer to do it separate? Um, emphasis, you know, everything, you know, hypertherm, because we're, you know, fairly, you know, egalitarian, it's all consensus collaboration driven. That's a key part of our culture and, and we're no different here. So the way the investment memo is driven. So our, our uh, kind of a, our director, uh, Nathan Pascarella is really takes the lead on that with his team. Uh, we have our advanced development team, which is a, the group of kind of senior scientists and engineers that are doing internal incubation. That's a huge advantage in that for the technology lens right up, they will take the lead on that for us. And they'll kind of dive deep into the tech and, and really give an overall assessment of, hey, here's our perspective on the technology. Uh, we get the business assessment from business development. And then we're working very closely with 
any business unit that's going to be close, or maybe it's an operations technology, uh, we'll look for them to do an assessment. And in some cases, we'll arrange a call uh, with, you know, for one that was focused on supply chain work, our head of supply chain, and the CEO for them to have a conversation, uh, which is a little bit of a back and forth interview for them to get to know us and us to know them better. And really getting that holistic, um, you know, connection between who they are, what they're about. And then, you know, I think a big part of venture capital is maximizing your information sources. And so for us, that external collaboration and networking with other VC firms and other experts in industry, as well as maximizing everything we have within our own four walls is a really critical part of developing a great investment thesis. Very nice. Now, I want to challenge you on the word consensus mm. because in VCs, it's known that if you want to do exceptional returns, you need to invest where people disagree it's a good investment. So yeah. you invest where everyone else disagrees. Uh, is there a risk where you try to get too much consensus, you end up actually going for the safe bet, which probably means you overpay because everyone wants to invest. So right. how, do you, how do you take this consensus mindset, which is a good mindset, but into an investment as a VC with a financial mindset you mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's, it's probably worth a bit of definition, right? So from my perspective on consensus, it doesn't mean 100% agreement, but it does mean that 100% of the views have been heard. Uh, and internalized, reflected on, and then a decision is made. And so it's more about just being open to information, uh, to exploring, and then coming up with a rationale that should be able to survive vigorous questioning. And it's okay if we disagree. Uh, and, and this is true for how we run our internal business as well as investment decisions. Um, you know, it, It's fine if we have different points of view and we disagree on it, but at least have we um, you know, brought that into a, a, I think it helps crisp up your hypothesis. So with any thesis that you've developed, you know, there will be naysayers, there will be a negative viewpoint on that, and that's great. That means that there's a nearing learning objective that you may want to prioritize. And a lot of times if we're thinking about an investment, you know, understanding, hey, what are those near-term obstacles? Uh, what's the, what's the next, next proof of concept that they need to have? Uh, maybe reflect some some better information back, but we're, you know, yeah, definitely not 100% agreement, um, but really just looking for kind of a, a very strong voices heard uh, situation. And I think it touched on something you said very early in the interview, which is it's easy to fall in love with a startup. Mm. So you actually do want the naysayers. You actually want all the inputs that would challenge the investment to be heard and to be understood. So I think you're Maybe that's one more golden nugget, but this is really about making sure you get all the inputs possible to then make your decision. Don't go with a decision in mind and try to find information that would confirm it. I want to talk about your uh, event you, you, you did last month. Yeah. Because I think many CVCs that are starting, they don't actually know how to announce and maybe how to make sure that you're positioning yourself the right way when you announce. And, and I think that the way you did your event was really nice because there was a very nice element of thought leadership to it at the same time as representing your company. Can you tell me how you planned it and what was the key criteria for you to uh, shape the design of that event? Yeah, no, great, great point. And it was, and that was a lot of fun to do as well. And, uh, you know, it's always a challenge this year to get people to attend one more zoom meeting and, uh, uh, at the, you know, it's one that when we were doing the initial planning, we were looking forward to doing an in-person event. And original planning was for one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast. So a couple things that went into the design of that, you know, we knew 
as we were getting started and, and, and moving forward with networking that we wanted to have some more events that could uh, get us better connected, uh, let people know more about who we are, what we're about, where we are. You know, Hypertherm isn't, is a household name in a very niche segment of manufacturing, uh, but not globally. And so for us, it was important to get out there and tell our story. But at the same time, you know, trying to do more than just say, hey, here's who we are, here's our investment thesis, here's the areas of interest, you call us if you'd like to partner. It was about, you know, how can we, you know, give back to the community? How, although we're new, how can we offer something up that's going to be of value? And as we thought through that, you know, our expertise in advanced manufacturing is really our, our key value, uh, what we can provide. And so whether that's as part of a, a group that's uh, looking at an investment or a partnership or, or you know, creating an event that's going to hopefully, you know, uh, pique some interest and drive uh, some new insights and value centered on future of advanced manufacturing uh, made perfect sense for us. And so we looked at that for saying, you know, someone that's done a lot of investing, uh, you know, so getting Scott Sandell from NEA to, to support us. And uh, he's actually a long-term friend of Hypertherm. Him and our founder, Dick Couch, uh, go way back. Uh, they're both on the board of Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth. Um, and so it was great to have Scott on and, and talk to him. And then Vladimir Bulovich uh, from MIT, uh, who's got a long storied career uh, in innovation uh, with a great university uh, to bring that strong manufacturing mindset as well from a research perspective. And so that just felt, you know, it was just too good to have a, such a powerful combination like that. Uh, and, I, and I believe that's still, uh, you know, available for, for people to watch as well if, if, if those are, if they're interested. But, you know, for us, finding a way to, create additional networking opportunities for a community uh, to bring some solid advanced manufacturing knowledge back to the community uh, and do it in a, in a fun way, uh, what was great. And, and that's something we're gonna continue as well. So we're looking uh, to have a, you know, a few of those uh, next year. We're not quite sure what the, what the timing pace will be, uh, but we're definitely looking to find ways to, again, bring uh, external experts in, uh, some of our top customers and involve them, but also some of our interner, internal associates who are really top of their field in manufacturing. So people that um, I think both investment uh, community startups will be interested in hearing from and gaining from their perspective. And so that's that's an intersection, I think, where we can bring some value to the community. Uh, that's very nice. And I really look forward to the next one. And I think it's really nice that you're actually planning to build it into a series. So I think that that actually could add a lot of value. Actually, I have a funny story about when Scott presented at your event because mm -hmm. he mentioned one of my good friends, David Plekenpol. So I had a call with him when he was uh, in lockdown in China. So just as a tidbit, but that was interesting that we also had connections. Yeah. Um, there's one thing which I find interesting is that you started incubation much earlier than you started the corporate VC. Uh, can you tell me about how you've done incubation and whether the way you do incubation now is slightly different because of your CBC inputs? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And it has evolved a little bit because you know, often when you only have the internal group, uh, it has uh, you know, it has to take outsized uh, responsibility for what you really can do uh, solely within your own four walls, and people tend to be a little more closed up off from partnership. So our incubation group uh, was founded some years back when we Kind of in the early uh, late 90s, early 2000s, started to um, assemble into discrete business units. 
And what's great about business units is, you know, that we really love that co-located marketing ops, engineering, solely focused on a customer segment. It's a way to stay nimble in a large company organization. But what you can miss out on are the interconnections between businesses, technologies that don't have uh, a direct home in a business unit's charter tend to get lost or tend to not get funded. And so our advanced development group was started up uh, to really meet that need and and find the right balance of uh, senior scientists, of discrete capabilities, of staff. Um, and the project list that we had them work on had, you know, in some cases were new business potential incubation. So looking at um, taking technologies at a business segment, putting a marketing person on it with them, a business development person creating it, as well as kind of first principles research as well to explore you know, areas of advanced R&D that would be uh, interesting for us. Um, getting into external um, partnership made sense in a lot of ways. You know, we are, as part of our company ownership ethos, we also have a no layoff uh, philosophy. So we've never had a layoff in 50 years. Um, that's, uh, for us, people are not disposable assets. And so that we, we don't pull that trigger ever. We'll cut back in other ways. So that means every hire is precious. So staffing up a large group to go after kind of a niche technology doesn't make sense because there's high failure rates there. And so what, what's kind of happened now is we can create a strong community of generalists that are built out with some specializations where we know we're going to need it. Uh, and then really have developing our partnership chops with the CVC, uh, really broadening people's thinking that other people are doing great work in these spaces. And we're, we've seen that's created additional mindset internally where, you know, a team of technologists where maybe they would have said, no, I can do this myself. They're saying, can I find a partner and do this faster? Why do all this work myself when I can, when I can uh, make it even better uh, and stronger with others? And so it's had this kind of halo effect on what we do um, because we're constantly bringing in uh, other external groups that are doing great work. And so, so yeah, so it's shifted in that they don't have to carry that full burden. They can uh, help more with development that's going to directly impact the business and not feel that like all the scouting is solely uh, solely um, falls into their responsibility and accountability. Very nice. Uh, let's move on to the investment decision making because I think that's something you I'm sure you spend a lot of time thinking about how to get it right. Um, can you describe how you're uh, making an investment proposal? the size of your investment committee, how they vote, how quickly they do it, and do you need one approval or two approvals? Yeah, so um, there's we have a couple of stages to the process here, and what we found has worked best for us so far has been kind of, um, maybe I'll break this down. It starts not just based on the individual investment, but in mapping of the space. And I so see. we've tried, because, you know, we'll have, uh, the investment team that is fully immersed and, and they're 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 really into it and deep. And then the last thing you want to do, and we, and we know this now because we've made the mistake, uh, is come in and you're going to do a 45-minute meeting with the investment committee and you're going to cover the space, uh, you know, this whittling down of 50 or 100 companies that you've looked at and here's this great one and we want to make X investment for X percentage. And it's just too much information for them to take in. And what, it, what we found happens, and I think this is a natural human condition as well, is if you, if you haven't been on the journey, uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions that are along with that. And it's not a question of trust. It's just that, you know, when you're dealing with top executive professionals, they have a lot of curiosity. They've got a lot of knowledge. They want to know 
if they're voting yes, they're all in on a decision. And I think there's also a little kind of fear of missing out if you're only seeing the one great one as opposed to at least some exposure to the sifting uh, that's occurred. So the way we've tried to break it down now is uh, if we're really mapping an area, we'll give at least a monthly update on we're mapping the space. Here's what the overall portfolio looks like. Here's the number of companies. Here's some of the insights we've developed so far looking at it. And um, you know, here's kind of the two or three front runners uh, with some a little bit more you know, single slide type summary information on uh, what they're about, team, technology, market, um, what's unique about them, what are the questions that we need to explore. And so that gives the investment committee uh, time to look, to digest, to offer some questions back, which we can then incorporate in the further sifting and refining. Uh, we then, after we've done that, um, as we're looking at the top two or three and really cultivating that relationship, we're building that more detailed investment memo, trying to get that uh, to the team, even if it's in somewhat of a draft form, uh, calling out where we have strong um, thesis developed, where we're still trying to learn. And then hopefully if we've done it right, we only need one investment committee meeting on the investment decision. So we'll come, we'll say, you know, a quick reminder, here's the mapping of the space, what we've educated you on. Here's the top three or four. Here's why this one is the best one. And it's usually a combination of they're really strong and it's just the timing because we don't. And that's also an education for your internal management and board is that you don't control the timing. Um, when they're doing the B round, they're doing the B round and you're either on or you're off and you have to be prepared to make those decisions sometimes quite rapidly. And so um, we're still building that kind of body of knowledge, but I think it'll be really helpful and powerful to have those overall spaces mapped, some high level thesis around where what's happening in the startup community here. So that way we've got a common grounding when we're looking at the one. And so uh, the entire team has the context and we're not having to recreate the context every time. I think it's really good to take the investment committee and I'm assuming probably more people than the investment committee along this journey. Um, can you tell me more about who gets access to this really good context setting information, but also the size of your investment committee and how they approve or not approve? And do they need the majority? Is it everyone needs to approve? Uh, all this design uh, aspect that I think many people in the audience would want to learn uh, how you do it. Yeah, so our investment committee is quite small. It's four others in addition to myself. Um, it's the CEO and CFO, as I called out. Uh, there's our head of corporate development, uh, who is both acquisitions, but has also uh, run major businesses uh, with other companies like Eaton. Uh, so he's got a great uh, point of view. And finally, our uh, VP of People, Community, and Environment. And so uh, she, Jenny Levy, she really brings uh, both a strong business mindset. So she's an MBA, uh, you know, has, has run uh, industrial manufacturing operations, uh, but also, you know, has, has really headed up our corporate social responsibility and people objectives over the last few years. And so that helps keep the team kind of well balanced around business, uh, finances, and people. And so we've really constructed it that way. Uh, we'll also as often as we can socialize with the full management team. So if the meetings coincide with when we're having a monthly uh, executive management uh, meeting, we'll, we'll hold the investment committee meeting with that broader audience. So the VP heads of business, of operations uh, can also be there and offering their viewpoint and certainly all the materials we socialize with them as well. Um, so that's a predominant group. And then we'll give 
quarterly updates to board uh, on key governance, pipeline, uh, how things are progressing, top updates on our investments, um, where the overall portfolio is going as well. And so, yeah, so it's a really great group. Um, you know, we've had good consensus, uh, you know, in terms of everyone's voted yes on every investment to date. So we haven't had a situation where it's kind of been, a, you know, a majority rules. Uh, one investment that we walked away from um, was was a mixed discussion where it was kind of, you know, we had some that were really seeing it uh, and others that uh, had concerns about kind of the fit with hype. It still felt good financially, but not the best fit. And we kind of walked through that and, and we all, but we all decided, um, no, we don't have enough uh, here to really move forward. So it's, it's a very congenial group uh, and, you know, they're very comfortable making decisions without fully complete information, which I think you have to be anyway. It's very uh, so, important. Yeah. So, so, so far it's been working well for us. So at the beginning of the um, interview, you talked about how you need to change the mindset of your management for thinking the right way about corporate VC. And maybe I'm not putting exactly the right words, but I think the mindset is really important. How do you feel about now that you're in the journey and you've done all this context setting information, you've made your first few investments, how much of that is helping your company be ready for the next disruption, embracing the disruption? Yeah, it's 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 a great question. I feel like one I'll be more prepared to answer in about three more years. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I I feel really good about the way people are already talking about added manufacturing in a different way um, because of what we've learned. And it's not just in the company we invested, which we're really proud of. Um, you know, and and that company's Mantle, by the way. I'll give them a, a sorry, a quick shout out. Uh, but very excited about the work that they're doing. I think uh, really introducing to people what it takes for a team, strong business leadership, which they have, strong technology and passion, fully focused and dedicated. You know, a lot of people that have joined our company weren't here when we were founded, obviously. And so that founder's journey, that startup journey, the excitement, the hard work, the blood, sweat and tears required to do that, that's a huge exposure that's brought um, the mapping of the additive manufacturing space, not only on the great work they're doing and why that can be a winning formula, but also everything everyone else in the ecosystem is doing that we've looked at, that we've tried to understand, that we've brought back. Um, that's just created a, a different level of intelligence than we, we would ever had and given us comfort in areas of our business where we say, you know what, I was worried about this. I'm not anymore because actually there's a a lot more synergies here and opportunity than there is kind of risk and threat and disruption and areas where we say, you know, we're going to have to watch this closely over the next few years and incorporate that into our business plans and think about how uh, that will shape our future journey. So on the robotics side, you know, I mentioned ready and there's some really solid work with understanding, you know, as we're looking at cutting uh, applications with robotics, uh, which are growing and growing, but how do you make that successful and how do you build integrator networks and how do you help uh, manufacturers go faster uh, with robotic automation? Uh, that's playing huge dividends in the business's strategy. And then our, you know, our final invest, our third investment to date, which is a small startup known as Syntecos focused on something fairly close to home with us that's disruptive to water jet cutting. Um, there, it's really been about watching um, this team try to develop this new technology, figure out the right way to bring it to market and helping uh, the, the overall water jet organization understand that context. So, you know, I, 
so so far, I've, I feel really good about the learnings that have happened. And I feel like that's just going to continue to compound. And if we can help the company understand these spaces better, um, if we can uh, help people know how to partner better, learn how to build businesses by watching uh, it happen and drive a strong financial return, I, that would be you know huge to look back on. Uh, with, with, uh, nothing would please me more. I think it's a very inspiring answer. One is because it touched on the why you started in the first place, but two, you're very concrete about what could be success stories inside your company on why you did it and you already can see it's bringing learnings. I like the word compound because also I think all these learnings compound with each other. They build on top of each other. Yes. In TPK Ventures, we call them knowledge graph because all these self-contained units of learning start to connect with each other and becomes a knowledge graph. So I think it's a really inspiring way of ending the interview, but I want to ask one final question, which is if you were to give an advice to Aaron two years ago uh, that you wish you had, what would it be? Um, yeah, I, I think ultimately I feel good that we ended up where we did, but the advice would be um, you know, find really good partners ask as many questions as you can, connect with as many people as you can. This community, uh, venture capital, you know, is, and we've remarked on this from day one, is so open, so helpful, so understanding, because like you said, it's very high risk. And so the way we find the best opportunities and put ourselves in the best success is we collaborate, uh, we communicate, we help each other and, and give back. So I think um, really trusting that, um, would be, you know, number one, double down, triple down uh, on the networking and asking questions before you consider even talking to a startup about a term sheet. And if I could have delayed that first term sheet conversation by another six months uh, to give myself more time to learn, I still feel very good about where we ended up. Um, but I think the learning would have been easier for both myself as well as uh, those early founders if we had educated our group more. So it's worth taking that extra time uh, and 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 give, giving yourself room to learn uh, before you try and dive in. I think that's perfect way of ending the interview with a final golden nugget. So uh, very inspiring. Thank you, Aaron. You were very candid, open, uh, and you shared so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're most oh, my pleasure. It's really really enjoyed the time, and I've been inspired by the TDK Ventures journey as well. We've I feel like we've been. Uh, you know, fortunate to be just a bit behind you on our growth so we can watch everything that you do. And I, I'm just so amazed and impressed with everything you've built so far. So congratulations to you as well. And, and, and thanks so much for this time. Thank you, Aaron. And again, thank you, 500 Startups, to make this series happen. Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.